Blog Talk Radio. Live somewhere down in the Fraser Valley after the Bob Dylan-esque song of Natural Group Natural Selection, a local group. This is Left of the Valley with Kevin and Karen. That's a great song already. Hi, Karen. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing? I am good. Good, good. And uh, we have a special guest here today with us. We have Mr. John Vissers. Welcome, John. Glad to have you. Wasn't expecting that. Thanks, Doc, for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to startle you with that. <laughs> no, no, no. For those of those of you who don't know us by now, and it's a shame on you if you don't, this is a show dedicated to uh, secular humanism, uh, skeptical thinking, and positive atheism right here in the Fraser Valley in beautiful BC. Anything else you want to add to that? No, let's Do jump right, right in. Let's jump right in. Uh, let's go with some local news, and like I said, John, feel free to jump in whichever one you where you want to. Um, apparently, in Abbotsford, they keep having this uh, situation with the their homeless uh, population. How's my sound so far? Am I sounding good? I can't hear you very well. You can't hear me very well. No. How's that? That's much better. Oh, there good. we go. Good. Good. Okay. Um, remember, we talked last uh, last show about Roy, a homeless man that was shot by rubber bullets in Abbotsford. I remember. Oh, yeah. Well. Uh, Saga keeps on going. Uh, we uh, kind of caught up with the Ward Draper of the Five and Two, and he's basically saying the uh, the uh, Abbotsford Police Department, the ACS, the Salvation, the Five and Two, they were contacted to figure out what to do with uh, his stuff as to, after uh, Roy was arrested in this video that went viral. Uh, the city, in the meantime, has hired a contractor to clean up and throw out everything that. Looks like garbage, which pretty much was everything he had. So now uh, it's all just been thrown away. It's all been thrown away. So everything is gone. Um, a petition, an online petition, apparently has been started to convince the authorities to stop their kind of violence against the homeless and the mentally ill. And, uh, and the Abbotsford News, in the meantime, tells us that the Jubilee Park cleanup, which happened earlier in the year, actually last year at this this point, cost them sixty thousand dollars plus, which would have been money much well better spent. Uh, and actually, actually finding a solution to the problem. Yes, exactly. So uh, I guess Abbotsford keeps doing their thing there that uh, they really shouldn't do. So do we know what happened to Roy? Is he still in jail? Um, I don't know at this point if he's in the hospital or in jail. Uh, John, you're, you're pretty prevalent in Abbotsford as well. Have you heard anything? 
No, no, I haven't. No, I don't really haven't really followed that story. Okay, okay. Um, we'll keep an eye on that, of course. Uh, in uh, Little Sleepy Mission, um, Mission Council wore themselves a pay raise, as politicians often do. Uh, added five percent for the mayor, so now his salary is seventy thousand one hundred seventy-eight dollars a year, and seventeen percent for each councilor. So now their salary, of course, they're a part-time position. Their salary is now twenty-eight thousand and seventy-one dollars a year. Plus, uh, apparently, there is a $2,400 and a $1,200 car allowance for the mayor and councillor, respectively. Um, of course, they all throw out the typical things of, you know, a city of the size of Mission, comparable to other cities, should get this kind of salary. I didn't have chance to research the, how it does actually compare across BC, but I will have that those numbers for next week. Yeah, they, they, apparently, they compare to cities like Port Moody and stuff like that. It is somewhere in the ballpark. Uh, as to whether or not they actually deserve these salaries, that's really up to you to judge. <laughs> okay, so um, so uh, Mr. Liam, uh, is he is he back? I hear uh, he might be back in town now. <laughs> yes, he's back in town. Is he? He is, but he's he's uh, recovering from jet lag, so you know. Yeah, yeah. So he not had, to be seen. He managed to escape the RCMP uh, from uh, in Ottawa, right? Oh, good, good. Yeah, he good did. He he outran them and. Oh, good for him. I'll be looking forward to hopefully some kind of report from him eventually from what happened in Ottawa. He did comment that it's a good thing question period is called question period because there are no answers to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, let's move on, I guess. Do you want to do your segment in uh, history? Sure. Okay. I think you have it, though. Oh, I do have it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Kind of a shorter one this week, since we had a show last week. Yeah. So, interesting things. April 28, 1945, Benito Mussolini was executed. And in 1967, Muhammad Ali refuses to be inducted in the army. Inducted? Well, drafted into the army. And uh, eventually, he he went to prison for that, right? But he eventually did win his case and and, uh, was deemed... Did he actually go to prison for that? Yes, he did. Oh, okay. Yes, I couldn't recall if he actually did. Yeah. Maybe I'm confusing him with Elvis. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, thing to confuse. Anyway, yes, he did go to jail, but he Fly did... like he a butterfly, uh, sting like a bee, huh? <laughs> he was found to be, uh, not have to serve uh, Catholic religion. And 2004, the Abu Ghraib prison... Scandal explodes on 60 Minutes on TV. Yeah, uh, those were the pictures of, well, you know, the prisoners and the pictures, how they were mistreating them. Oh, the picture of the guy standing in the box with his head covered with, yes. the, with electrical wires yes. attached to his fingers. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And the pyramid of naked men and the, the female GI pointing to them and all that stuff and the dogs barking. So from 1945 to 2004, we really haven't progressed as much as we see. Well, apparently not. Um, 1945, the concentration camp Dachau is liberated. Oh, this is April 29th, and April 29th, 1980, Alfred Hitchcock died at the age of 80. Yes. I should have had a soundbite for that. <laughs> um, oh, this is interesting. In May, April, April 30th, 1803, France sells Louisiana to the United States. Go ahead, John. No, go ahead. <laughs> don't tell me you were there, because I won't believe that. But, of course, it has a Canadian connection, right? The Cajuns are actually displaced Acadians. Yes, indeed. Um, in 1945, Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun commit suicide, 
1975, the end of the Vietnam War was uh, when the South surrendered to the North in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Lots of war. May 1st, 1931, the Empire State Building opened. May 1st, yeah, 1931. Well, at the time, was the tallest building in the world. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, Newfoundlanders, especially, but Canadians from the Maritimes who went and, and hung a seal from the sky. Well, Where that's why it's that? well built. <laughs> Uh, oh, and May 1st, 1941, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane opens in New York. Considered one of the best movies ever made. Mm-hmm. May 2nd, 1940, oops, sorry, 1994, Nelson Mandela was victorious in South Africa's first multiracial elections. I remember that very well. That's a, it's not that a far back. It's not, yeah, it's not that far back in time, and it's a shame he's already passed on the job. He's a great man. Mm-hmm. May 2nd, 2011, U.S. troops kill Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. Uh, May 3rd, 1979, Margaret Thatcher is elected in the United Kingdom the first woman prime minister. Uh, May 4th, 1932, Al Capone is jailed for tax evasion. That's the only way you could get him. Yes. Was that May 4th? Are you, are you doing that? Yep. Well, I might as well stick there because that's a date today. So. Okay, May 4th. <laughs> that's it. All right. Well, let's move on. I guess let's bring in our our uh, our guest again, and he's going to be here from the... Uh, can we say from the Fraser Valley Conservancy, John? Is that who you, you're kind of representing today, I guess? Well, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm just representing myself. It wouldn't be fair uh, to... Well, I... I I participate in a lot of uh, a lot of not-for-profit organizations, yeah. primarily focused on environmental so issues. So you're, you're you're probably one of the few people that I know that probably has a hand into everything. <laughs> I, well, it's almost inevitable because everything's connected to everything else, and so you can't exclude one issue. Uh, if if you really want to make a difference, you you've got to have your hand in everything. So we got John Vissers here today, ladies and gentlemen. John, the mic is yours. Today we want to talk. You want to talk about the incinerators. Well, yeah, I don't know the the the. the uh, I don't know what range you have in terms of uh, listening audience, but uh, here in the Fraser Valley. Oh, it's got to be fast. I, I should think it's global. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but here in the Fraser Valley of British Columbia, uh, yeah, we've uh, we've been facing something of a of a crisis in the last uh, five years, and and that is Metro Vancouver's. Uh, plans to burn garbage instead of instead of reducing waste, uh, which mm-hmm. of course goes against so much of of the things that I believe in um, on so many different levels. I hardly know where to begin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was doing some reading about this, and they don't even want to. They want to burn the garbage, but they want to chuck it away first and then burn it. They don't want it in their own backyard. Is that is that correct? There is an incinerator well, in Burnaby, isn't there? Well, there's, yeah, there's an existing Burn, Burnaby incinerator, which at present is operating without an operating certificate because they they didn't get it uh, appropriately renewed, and so right now they're burning without a permit. Is that the okay. one that's right by the river near the, uh, the mm-hmm. Queensboro Bridge? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I know that one. Yeah. But yeah. they didn't they they looked were looking at prospective cities in Nanaimo was a place that they were thinking oh. building it, and Nanaimo refused. Mm-hmm. Well, right right now they don't have a location. They're they're looking at potential locations. Uh, uh, stepping back a few steps, though, uh, in, in in this discussion, uh, there was a, an organization a decade or two ago that that was established, and it was called Zero Waste Vancouver, mm-hmm. and uh, or Zero Metro Zero Waste. Anyway, they 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 used the term zero waste, and uh, 
And of course, many of the not-for-profit groups and environmental groups thought this was a great plan. Uh, it would it would promote uh, waste reduction, uh, waste diversion through recycling organics, uh, producer responsibility for things. And, and we thought this was a spectacular project, and it had uh, it had vision. But then uh, there was a a problem with uh, much of what we what we now call garbage is being trucked up to Cache Creek in the interior of BC mm-hmm. and being buried. And of course, that's not acceptable either. So, so Metro decided, Metro Vancouver, which is a, a regional uh, area that encompasses several large cities in the lower mainland in the uh, western Fraser Valley, uh, Metro Vancouver decided that they would include mass burn or incineration as part of their zero waste plan. Their argument being that burning garbage was a uh, was not was not a what uh, was actually part of the recycling program. In other words, they were going to turn it into energy. And we of course know that's not possible, but uh, but they succeeded in, in in arguing their case. And then since then, of course, they've proceeded down the road in the last five years of of uh, developing a plan of of where to build where to build this facility and uh, what type of technology they're going to use. And then of course there's there's Arguments flying back and forth, particularly between the metro region and uh, what's called the Fraser Valley Regional District, which includes uh, cities like uh, uh, Abbotsford, Mission, and Chilliwack, and so on. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's, it's become a very, very polarized issue. Wait, wait, wait a minute. You, you, you just said that they're, they're trying to burn garbage to turn it into energy, and you are telling me that doesn't actually happen. That, that's not really. That's not the reality of. Well, well, no. Just for the lame person like, like no. myself, this is exactly what I thought they were doing. This. Well, that, that's what that's what they're trying to tell us they're doing, and that's what they want to believe they're doing. Uh, but the energy inputs to burn garbage, or what's left in the waste stream after you take out recyclables and compostables, the the materials that are left in the waste stream at that point uh, are not particularly good at at combustion at burning. So you have to inject a lot of energy. Uh, to make the stuff burn. And even then, as much as 30% of it is left behind, it's simply not combustible at all. And that's called bottom ash, and you still have to find... And that, of course, becomes a, uh, a toxic material, and you've got to find a place to, to bury that. So, so the energy inputs, along with, the, along with the, the, the so-called ash, really the remainders, all the material that simply doesn't burn... Um, Add that to the the stuff that, of course, goes up the chimney, which is something we can talk about some more later. Uh, All of these things really, really are being being considered externalities uh, and and not considered in terms of of the real energy consumption of this kind of activity. Uh The flawed study. So, and what about, um, I've I've read that people were concerned that because everything is going to get burned anyway, the compostables and the recyclables might suffer, that everything is just going to end up in the same pile to be burned. Yeah, well, for for many of us, myself in particular, let's say today I've got my uh, Zero Waste BC hat on. You can look at our website, zerowastebc.org, and another group that uh, we're active with right now, it's called burnfreebc.org. Both of those uh, sites are very, very uh, helpful in terms of telling the story. But uh, wearing that hat right now, um, I can I can I can say that that uh, that 
none of the claims they're making are, are, are accurate. And what we know is that, is that when, if we should choose as a region to invest half a billion dollars in infrastructure that we have to feed for the next 40 to 50 years, uh, we're, going to, we're going to wind up being forced by legislation to burn compostables and recyclables in order to make it work. So, so that undermines yeah. all the groups in the Lower Mainland that are actively working, both in, the, both in the not-for-profit sector and in the private for-profit sector, that are working to build infrastructure and build businesses around recycling, composting, and waste reduction. Mm-hmm. They are going to have to pay, and their businesses will suffer, and perhaps even disappear, if this technology moves ahead, if this, if this, this, um, this absurd process moves ahead. So what are they using to justify this, really, if, if there's so many clearly, I mean, we haven't even talked about the emissions. And no, we'll get to that. But, but uh, well, justification is, 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 isn't really that complex. I mean, let's face it. If, uh, if, if you're a, uh, a member of the, of the Metro Vancouver Waste Management Committee, which is made up of councillors and mayors from different, different municipalities in, the, in that region, if, if you've been tasked with taking out the garbage, <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's literally what it is, then you're looking for the easiest way out. You're looking, mm-hmm. for, you're looking for something that will fix the problem quickly so that you, don't, so that you can go on doing something more interesting. Nobody really wants to be in charge of, of well, really, people don't find garbage particularly sexy or interesting, <laughs> and for good reason. And, uh, uh, and, and so you can't blame the councillors and mayors for, for voting for a process that will just make it all go away. Right. Uh, and... and and, and I think that's, that's at the root of it, is, is really just they've been pitched a, a technology, a process by multinational corporations that build these things all over the world uh, that, are look, that are actually running out of places to build these things because, because cities are turning them down and regions are turning them down. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're big business. They pitch and they're very professional and there's hundreds of millions of dollars to be made, of course, in profits. Uh, and you're a city councillor, and your job is to find a solution. Looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, very difficult for a politician to turn this down. You, men- you mentioned a bunch of cities that turned them down. Do you have any uh, off the top of your head? Some of these cities that rejected these uh, incinerators? Well, if you had internet access here in, in, in the radio studio, I'd be able to find those for you. But uh, oh, well, we do. <laughs> well, not on, not on my phone. Oh, no, okay. I'm sure there's been there has been um, there has been some movement in European and Eastern Canadian and American cities where they have, not only have they, some of them have turned down incinerators simply because the, the business model is, is, is lousy, and others have actually been bankrupted. There are cities in the United States that have been bankrupted by incinerators who, who literally have contracts to burn garbage that doesn't exist or can't, can't break even on, on the contracts that they have and so have other agreements with the regions that force those regions to uh, subsidize them, much oh, wow. not, uh, not unlike Abbotsford's problem with, uh, with, a, uh, with a hockey arena. Yeah. At least with that, you know, some people got to watch hockey. But with this, uh, can you imagine uh, building something similar to that and pumping millions of dollars in, into it every year because it actually loses money? Oh, my gosh. And that's, and that's what we're looking at. Yeah. So they, the, 
the incinerator company, would they, they sign a contract for a certain amount of waste? Well, that's, that's the only way they work. They can't wow. operate any other way. So, yeah, yeah that's completely the opposite mm-hmm. of trying to encourage people to reduce. It's well, like, sure, more like course. we have to keep up our garbage output. That's yeah. ridiculous. How, how, much, how, much of a, how much energy output do we know? Well, I mean, no, no, we don't. In the, the, there is a science behind this, of course. It's very complex, but it's completely dependent on the fuel. Your 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 uh, BTUs mm-hmm. that you produce from a mass burn, whether you're burning coal or natural gas or garbage, uh, the BTUs are dependent on the quality of of the inputs, and the business model is built around a fuel that is made primarily up is made up primarily of materials that should not be in that in that mm-hmm. waste stream. Uh, that we have already committed to removing from that waste stream, particularly plastics. Plastics burn really good, but they also produce a lot of a lot of chemicals and and uh, and you know, nanoparticles that float up into the air and are breathed in by our lungs. Uh, so they're they're a dirty, dirty fuel. They're much dirtier than coal. Uh, dirtier than or, coal. Organic. That. Organics. That means uh, food waste, uh, yard waste. Uh, Anything that's well, anything that was at one time living is organic. All the organics uh, we've already committed in the region. We've committed to remove those from the waste stream, and yet those are the very things they need to produce a viable fuel. So their modeling on energy produced is based on a fuel that won't exist if they follow their own mandates to to if for recycling and composting. Wow. So there's there's got to be some okay. There's got to be some kind of a hook there, right? I mean, uh, you you tell me the I'm, I'm going to play a bit devil's advocate. Here. Sure, no, you should. Because I'm pretty good at doing this kind of stuff anyway, <laughs> uh, as Karen can probably attest. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I just want to say, just, politicians might not be the brightest of of them, but there's also got to be some kind of a hook there that you can sell the politician on it. You're you're right when you're saying okay, there's. There's a there's a solution. It might be a quick fix, but there's got to be a bit more than that. If you're telling them the fuel they need is something they're pulling out already be, to make those green bins or those compostable things, and that's the fuel they need. There's got to be something else that hooks. Well, it, it's never as, as 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 simple. Of course, there's there's many different layers to this argument, and it's never quite as simple as that. The truth right now is is we're only diverting about seventy percent of compostables and recyclables from the waste stream. Perhaps not even that. Uh, in reality, okay, and the rest right now is being trucked off to Cash Creek and, and put in a hole in the ground. Well, that's that's unacceptable, and uh, and so the the people supporting the idea of burning are saying, well, it's not great, but it's better than putting in a hole in the ground. And we're not sure that that our culture, our society, will ever commit to reducing the amount of waste it, it produces now. Uh, our whole, our whole um, economic system is built around uh, waste. In other words, throwing, throwing stuff, yeah. consuming and throwing stuff away. And so we have to, not only, not only do we have to change, um, change the way we, we uh, uh, discard the things we don't want, we also have to change the way we consume. And of course, that's that's a big step for any culture. The supporters of incineration are saying, "Yeah, well, it'll happen, but you know, it's going to take 50 years." 
And in the meantime, this technology will, will get us from, from here to there. And then when we don't need it anymore, well, then we'll shut it down. Uh, but of course, change requires incentive. Yeah. And it seems that human beings are only, uh, are only motivated by necessity uh, and are rarely motivated by anything but necessity. And so we're getting into kind of esoteric ground here. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're getting into <laughs> proactive versus reactive. Yeah, yeah, so, so on and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, okay, so uh, does the incinerator create, because I can see the other hook, I'm a bad devil's advocate, obviously, because I'm actually kind of <laughs> helping him now. Well, uh, are, they, are they creating a lot of jobs with this? Uh, no, not at all. No. No, there's very, very few. In fact, in fact, there's fewer jobs in, in uh, waste management and in, in incineration than there is, of course, in, in, in uh, the, 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 the trucking industry and, and all the others. Uh, the, the, by far, I, I think there's a for every one job with incineration as a as a as a um, as a foundation for waste management, you've got a hundred jobs in the in the private sector through uh, waste reduction, recycling, uh, composting, and so on, small businesses, not-for-profits, uh, community, community-based community uh, groups. You get, for every one job in incineration, you can get as many as 100 jobs. So it's not, wow. the, it's not the jobs, it's not the power output. And it's, so it's just because, it's a bit like the pipeline debate they have here. It's better to ship it by pipeline than by train, they say, because yeah. it's safer. It's the best of a bad, so, uh, of a bad, Right. And really, and really, uh, if, if if I were a city councilor in Vancouver and I were um, pragmatic realist, cynic, if you will, I would look at my city and I would say, yeah, you all say you're going to recycle and compost, but you're not going to do it. And it's up my job to take care of the garbage. So the only real practical solution is to burn it. Wow. And 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 you know what? Honestly, you can't blame them. I can, I don't believe in in uh, in. Uh, these people doing bad things just because they like doing bad things. Most most politicians, in spite of what we we like to think, are just trying to do their jobs and get out of the way. Most politicians are trying to do their jobs. I think so. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Can I tell you a funny story about the Cash Creek landfill site? Sure. <laughs> so, my parents live north of Cash Creek, and we were driving there one time to see them. And it was late at night when we left, and. We knew about this great campsite that we'd been to before, and we were trying to find the campsite, but it's dark now, and, and I was just really tired, and, and so I'm like, hey, here it is, it's this road here. So we turn, and we go down this road, and there's a big sign that says, Cash Creek Sanitary Landfill. <laughs> we're like, okay, I guess this wasn't you can, <laughs> a great you, campsite. You sure pick up a great campsite. So we ended up staying in a hotel, and we found the campsite later on. But, but yeah, we tried to camp at the sanitary site <laughs> at Cash <Yikes>. Creek. <laughs> Well, that would have been for a stinky weekend, I bet. <laughs> but uh, so now we can uh, um, maybe talk about the the, the emissions. The, the, do you know what the projection? Is? Well, I guess again, it's hard to tell because they don't know what they're actually going to be well, burning. But and that's the whole argument uh, on the emissions forefront is that no one knows what's going to be coming out. If you don't know what's going in, you don't mm-hmm. know what's coming out. Yeah. And uh, again, the technology that they're bringing to bear on on this is, is sure, it's world-class, no question about it. But we have a unique airshed. Mm-hmm. Most people, well, some people listening might remember that, uh, that uh, we were able to defeat uh, a large power plant Energy project, Sumas Energy 2, uh, about ten, almost 10 years ago to the day. Uh, yeah, beginning of the end of April, beginning of May, 10 years ago, we defeated uh, an application for a huge power plant on the principle that that the um, emissions 
And this was a natural gas plant, which is about one of the cleaner fuels that we have. Nonetheless, it is a, it is a, a fossil fuel, but um, based on the vulnerability of our, of our air shed here in the Fraser yeah. Valley, it traps air and it, and, it, and it loads pollutants. And we already have a lot of point sources in the valley that produce pollution, not to mention our own cars. And adding significantly to that is mm-hmm. just not acceptable. And so, um, so when this when this uh, garbage burning idea came along, uh, the Fraser Valley Regional District jumped all over it and said, "No way is this ever going to proceed with our approval." Mm-hmm. Uh, Metro chose just to ignore the Fraser Valley Regional District. That's Abbotsford, Mission, Chilliwack, and so on, Agassiz, all the way out to Hope. Uh, they just chose to ignore. Uh, the concerns of the Fraser Valley and move ahead, and uh, and, it, and and that battle has hasn't certainly hasn't uh, hasn't gone away, uh, and it's increasing. In fact, now the the issues with air quality are real; they're not imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way for us to to show scientifically what kind of pollution would come out because because we simply don't know what's going right. in. We can okay. only assume based on average content of these black bags that we still use to collect our garbage. We can just assume that there's no way that the infrastructure will ever be built to divert materials from those black bags. Uh, sort. Nobody's going to cut black, black bags of garbage open and sort them uh, before it goes into the incinerator. We, mm-hmm. don't, we don't operate that way in our culture. And uh, all we know is that People throw things in those bags that don't belong there. Mm-hmm. And we are going to wind up having that material. Some of it winds up in bottom ash. We know that. That can be collected. Some of it winds up as fly ash. That can be measured and collected. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, and then you can measure the, the energy that's converted from materials. Okay, But there's a scientific principle, what's it called, uh, very basic, that... You know, matter can't be created or destroyed. It can only mm-hmm. be changed into something else. Mm-hmm. Well, you do the math, and there's a significant portion of materials missing from the equation, okay, in terms of the energy that you're producing, the bottom ash, the fly ash, then there's a component left over. Well, that's the stuff that goes up the chimney, and that's the stuff that we're breathing. We know what that percentage is. It's not significant, but again, if you're, bur- if you're burning, what, 700, what is it, 700,000 tons a year, uh, uh, that material is up in the air, somewhere. and it's and it's and it's being trapped in our air shed, mm-hmm. and then we are breathing it. And uh, we know from experience that that's not a good thing. Now there are places in the world where they build incinerators where the air quality isn't affected. Uh, it could be a good example would be like say the prairies where the air just blows through, or an mm-hmm. island nation like Hawaii. Uh, but, but 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 we have a, a very very unique situation here. And just, I mean, if they, maybe the people of residents of that city with the incinerator don't feel the effects of it themselves, but someone feels the effects of it. That all ends mm-hmm. up in our atmosphere and it ends up harming someone somewhere down the line. Yeah, just those, because are called, it, those are called downstream environmental effects. Yeah. And uh, we are arguing that, you know, that we have a, a legal right to, to oppose. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and of course we are. Has, has Metro Vancouver been steamrolling this? <laughs> I mean, are they are they still going to just go right through? Well, absolutely. No, in fact, in fact, in in terms of in terms of the time frame for this, uh, we've already they've already moved past the decision 
of whether or not they're going to go with incineration. That, that has already been approved and passed by Metro. All they're doing now is looking for a place to build and looking for the technology. They've already passed, Metro has already passed uh, the, the, uh, the decision to use this technology. So, uh, to, sorry, to use this to, to use this system as the as the foundation for waste management. Uh, they, that was done a year ago. That's over. So now it, it's coming down to each community that they assess as a possible site for the mm-hmm. for the incinerator. So yeah, and, and inevitably, what happens, of course, particularly in in an election season, uh, you'll see uh, municipality after municipality saying, "No, it's not going to happen." in Richmond. No, it's not going to happen in, in Maple Ridge. No, it's not going to happen in, uh, in Port Coquitlam or Langley or, or what have you. Uh, so, so then, of course, Metro has to look further afield. And they, they're looking up the Sunshine Coast. They're looking at Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nanaimo was a, was a choice target. But consider the, consider the absurdity and the, I mean, the outrageousness of barging, yeah. <laughs> barging massive like, tankers of garbage across the strait and uh, to Nanaimo to have it burned there. Well, Nanaimo, needless to say, the city of Nanaimo balked and said, no, I'm afraid not. We're not going to, we're not going to see that here. So Nanaimo's turned it down. Um, but when, when push comes to shove, um, the regions don't actually have the right to turn down an application like that. They don't? No, they don't. They don't it's, have the right It's to provincial. Uh, oh, it's a provincial uh, thing, and, and they simply don't. If, if the province of BC, uh, if, 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 if the environment ministry in the province of BC uh, approves an application, whether it's a mine or whether it's a garbage dump, uh, like Cash Creek is a good example, um, then, and then it's simply approved, and, and the, local, the local region really has no say. So, so that just wow. Metro is steamrolling over, but also the province. Well, it would, to be, to be fair, I mean, again, no, no, uh, like, politically, it would, it would be a foolish thing, you know, for, for Metro Vancouver to choose a, a location that is 95% opposed by the the local, Mm -hmm. local population. So then they start looking at uh, First Nations and negotiating with First Nations, negotiating with uh, heavy industry. Uh, One of the sites that I'm very worried about right now that could slip under the radar, and it could be why. Also, we're sort of jumping ahead here, but uh, one of the sites is uh, is uh, Lafarge Cement Production Plant, uh, and there's been some unofficial discussion between between uh, the cement plant in Vancouver. It's a huge, huge facility. Right now, they burn they burn uh, coal and tires. Okay, rubber tires. Uh, in fact, like 30% of our of our uh, so-called recycled tires go to uh, heating or generating energy for cement plants. People don't know that. <laughs> no, I had no idea. Uh, wow. And so, and so, there's discussion there between uh, between the, the large cement producers and in Vancouver and uh, and Metro as to perhaps citing a facility to uh, you know uh, to literally offset uh, the use of coal and rubber tires. We're saying that garbage is no better than coal or rubber tires. Yeah. So how is that? How is that a benefit? You know, to okay. the to the to the region. So, but nonetheless, that there's that could be that certainly could be an application that 
that will slide in under under the radar. Now, what you're saying that uh, garbage is no better than coal or rubber tires. I'm assuming you guys have some kind of scientific backup on this. Oh, sure, yeah. Five years ago, when we when we tried, uh, you know, the last four or five years, and we tried to convince Metro that burning garbage is a bad idea, we had experts come from all over the world and and uh, do presentations uh, and workshops, and that the, the the science is there, the data is there that that burning garbage is is one of the one of the dirtiest forms of energy production you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so I'm going to keep going with my, my, my skeptic path here, and I'm going to say, all right, um, I'm going to say what a lot of people say all the time. Okay, John, fine. I'm willing to jump in with you here and, and, and give you that. What is the solution then? Like oh, you said, it's, 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 the bad, it's the better choice mm-hmm. of a bad mm-hmm. set of choices, you know? Mm-hmm. The solution is, is, is not, not to make... Um, Garbage disposal easier to make it hard, more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that. Well, there's no such thing as a solution. Of course, there's a process. But the process towards zero waste, which is what I think we should be trying to achieve, and what everyone pretends they're trying to achieve, uh, the, the the process is to make the the removal of garbage more difficult, and then small pieces of the solution will present themselves through the private sector, uh, through, um, through producer responsibility. Uh, there's all sorts of examples of that where, where, uh, where packaging and, 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 and distribution of, 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 of products has been modified and changed and made more sustainable simply because, because legislation required it. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have happened on its own. It's, it's two things, of course, so, social acceptance and legislation. But, but really, there is no easy solution. It's a process. And all we're doing when we build the infrastructure to make, make garbage go away, if we make that easy for people and for ourselves, we are not going to change our habits. And our habits aren't sustainable, so, so we really don't have a choice. We have to change our habits. Yeah, but you're – sorry, go ahead. There's cities in the states that have banned uh, the the sale of of water in plastic bottles. I think that'd be a huge step forward if we could just do that. And that's something that the cities municipalities can legislate themselves to say, no, we're not going to sell this product. Yeah. And uh, I know I a couple of years ago I I watched the Clean Bin Project documentary and I tried to go fantastic waste, movie by the way waste free. I collected mm-hmm. all the garbage. We didn't throw at anything. We collected all the garbage that we produced and watched everything we purchased. And it was really, really hard to, to be waste-free. You're right. It's not something that happens easily. It's a huge change in your lifestyle just because you can't even buy, you know, the meat that you would normally buy at the grocery store because the plastic's not recyclable or it has styrofoam a tray. So it's a it's a huge change that it's going to have to happen incrementally. But I'm, yeah. But can we, can we seriously expect companies to, say, for example, a lot of people complain that the size of packaging, you know, you, you get something, you buy it's tiny, but it's wrapped in plastic, wrapped in plastic, wrapped in plastic, and, you know, companies are saying, well, you know, it's to prevent theft, it's better for shipping. Can we actually, you know, one city at a time expect companies to legis- follow legislation that says, you know, you got to have this type of packaging for a product, especially when you're dealing with multinational corporations? Of course. Everything that comes to Canada is written in French and English. We're the only nation in the world that has that. If they can do that kind of specialized packaging, they can do any kind of specialized packaging. And there's all sorts of bio, biological, or I don't know if that's the right, organic plastics that are actually created out of 
Those, those are sorry to sorry to burst no, your bubble there. No, this is not good. <laughs> You're the expert. It turned out it turned out that the that whole industry uh, didn't really didn't really live up to its its. Uh-oh. We were all so excited when when these when this when the science came along or the technology came along. They were they were called there were like compostable plastics yes. and then and then also um, plastics that would biodegrade. They weren't actually compostable. They would biodegrade. Okay, so you have to be really really careful of that. Biodegradable plastics, all that means is that the plastic breaks down in sunlight into tiny, tiny little pieces. Yeah, it's still just well, tiny pieces. The oceans of are full of that stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. It's all biodegraded plastic. Um, compostable plastic, okay, the problem with compostable plastic turned out to, to be twofold. Uh, and I don't want to be, you know, I. Well, we have I don't to be wanna, I don't want to be the, the, the bearer of bad news. Okay, right? well, let's but, put something to. But I'll tell you, but quickly, so <laughs> the problem, the problem with, with, with compostable plastics is twofold. Uh, first, the source, okay? Now, we're using, we're using food materials, some byproducts, but like things like potatoes and corn, starch, and all these sorts of things that require tremendous energy inputs to grow. Okay. And then process and refine and turn into these biodegradable plastics. Okay. And then, and if you look at the if you look at the carbon footprint of of a of a a fork, a plastic fork made from say potato starch. If you look at the the, uh, the yeah the, the CO2 contribution that that fork makes, it's it's really outrageous. It, it's obscene. And then it's a one use it's a one time yeah. use product. Yeah. And then what what do we do? We try to compost it when in fact. Very few composting systems in the world right now um, are capable of composting those materials because they require a very high temperature that you won't normally find in a, in a, a passive organic, or, or organic composting system. So then again, the energy inputs, you have to have a, you have to have a high-tech composting system to break that down, mm-hmm. more energy inputs in, at the end of life for that fork. Right. And that fork's life was how long? 30 seconds? So consider, consider what we do, you know, but what it did, interestingly, it made people think. So on a symbolic level, those, those, those biodegradable plastic cups and biodegradable forks and things like that and plates, they made, at least they made people think. So on a symbolic level, they help, but in a, in a real world um, model, they have created an enormous problem. There is, and then there's one other that I have to... I have to add, of course. Of course, of course. And then there's one other. Plastics, uh, you know, the, the, the basic five types of plastics that can be recycled, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the soft plastics, the hard plastics, they're typically a little triangle with a number on it. Yep. Okay, the biodegradable ones have a little number seven, I think. Uh, six is post, post-consumer, and then seven is biodegradable plastics. You, you now, know all these by heart, and I think that's great information, Pastor, by the way. <laughs> Too bad this is radio because I could show you how I could show you an easy way to remember them. But anyway, uh, well, you can still show me. You know, well, there's five. Bas- there's five. I do this in the middle schools with the kids. There's five basic types of plastics in the little triangle. The numbers. Yep. There's five basic ones that you'll see most often. Okay, um, one and two are good. Four and five are good, but three is bad. <laughs> Don't ever buy three. And I do this in the middle schools. The kids love it. <laughs> He just gave us the finger. <laughs> <laughs> you hold up your hand, five fingers extended. You take down the thumb and your forefinger, and then your and then your last two fingers. You're left holding the middle finger up, and that's the bad that number a, three. That's a, great a good way, way to remember. Good visual way. cue. So, 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 so I feel bad for the teachers though, because they get phone calls from the parents the next day. Right? <laughs> but it, but nobody forgets three is three is a terrible plastic, and so is seven. Because what happens? 
Notice how I just segued that right back that into our... Brilliant. Yeah. That was brilliant. That was brilliant. Because you guys got me off track here. So. <laughs> we so got you off track? Number seven. You know, I think is, we got well, the show off track some all the seven or, And there's, there's various different uh, ways of, 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 of um, marking compostable plastics. But what happens is they look exactly like the other plastics. So what do people do by accident, not intentionally? They'll do two things. They'll take that compostable plastic cup and they'll throw it in with their plastic recycling. Mm-hmm. Okay? They won't mean to, but it'll happen, guaranteed. Every time they do that, they, they essentially they, they contaminate an entire load of recyclable plastic that was going to get melted down and turned into pellets uh, and reused. As soon as there's a, 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 an organic-based uh, polymer in there, it, it, it contaminates the load. And it works the other way around, too. Some people will think they've got an organic or a compostable cup when it's not. It might be biodegradable, not compostable. They'll throw it in their compost. Okay? And what happens then is the compost then becomes contaminated with plastics, and it reduces the value of the composted materials. And this is happening all over North America right now. One of the worst things ideas we came up with was compostable plastic. Hmm. Oh, I, 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 so I completely retract everything I I'm just said. Sorry, I'm sorry. I, but, we have to, but we have to tell no, the we truth. We've the run truth. out of time for being nice. Oh, you know, yeah, for We sure. have to yeah. tell the truth. So, so, Kevin, sorry, you have to retract your statement there. <laughs> okay, but I, I don't retract my statement of zero waste being incredibly hard to achieve and something that we all need to strive for. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I'm quite surprised by that statement from you, John. I... I didn't expect that kind of a statement, but you know, it's, it's, it's good. good. It's good. It, that's kind of the greenwashing, right? Uh, well, sure. Making things appear to be environmentally friendly when they really aren't. And that's and, a big problem and right so, now. And so much of that is, is, is exactly it. The industry will, will uh, happily jump on as, as long as they can sell a product. Hey. And, and I, I mean, I fell for it myself. You hey, know, guys, you know three what? or four years ago, I was promoting the heck out of this. You know what? We actually have a caller. You guys want to take that caller? Of course. Hey. On the air. Hi. 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 What's your name? This is Wendy Bales. Hi, Wendy. How are you doing? Hi, Wendy. Good. Um, have you heard of the polyest- uh, polystyrene that's made from fungus and farm waste, but not yeah, from actual farm produce? Yeah, we're looking at, I'm, I'm in the insulation business as well, and we're even looking at it as a, as a potential source for an insulation material. Same, same process. Yeah, um, but... You know, Basically grown from a fungal or a mushroom type product. It's gonna, it, it, it's gonna, it potentially could revolutionize the uh, the styrofoam business. It'll be a hard sell, though. Why do you think it'll? Yeah, be a hard sell? I would imagine well, it would be. What really needs to happen is more federal government input into packaging to make it work. Uh, to force uh, producers to do something like that, basically. Uh, the uh, UBCM and FCM have uh, both put out resolutions in the past that that tried to get the federal government to put some standards on packaging, but uh, so far no luck with that, unfortunately. It's, it's something that's just coming out, but but imagine imagine if we could grow our packaging, wouldn't that be phenomenal? That'd be awesome. We could literally grow packaging to 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 form around a product. This is this is I've seen uh, some really interesting uh, YouTube on this and, and thanks for bringing that up, Wendy. Yeah, is this in well, production in Canada? 
Yeah, especially for things like uh, plant pots, for instance. Uh, you buy plant pots, that typically people just throw them in the garbage after, and they're very hard to clean for recycling. So imagine plant pots that you can just put in the ground and they'll just compost with the, within a year or something like that. So that's just one of a few possible solutions that I've seen. Uh, but another thing about uh, the burning process is the fact that you're basically burning resources that you can never get back in, a, in, in foreseeable lifetimes because it's turning into uh, uh, nanoparticles into the air. And uh, that should be a big concern, but also the fact that uh, the externalities of uh, cheap fossil fuels are going to be no longer existent in our lifetime, I would believe. Uh, it, it's just sad, sadly, a not... Sadly, sadly, the whole fossil fuel argument has become uh, one that, oh, now with, with fracking and, and with, uh, with tar sands, uh, we've extended peak oil for probably another 50 to 60 years. We don't have that long anymore. But it, it's a good point that... You know, we should, that's uh, another reason for looking for alternatives. We don't need to be relying on fossil fuels. For well, thank you for your call, Wendy. I appreciate that. Yeah, that was great. Just one more so point, Wendy. though. Go ahead. Don't make it quick. Uh, one more point is, is about the nanoparticulate that would come from the incinerators. Yeah. And that is that uh, uh, Health Canada did some studies, which they cut off, actually, and the studies showed that uh, the nanoparticulate could cause strokes and other, other possible illness possibilities. So, unfortunately, they were just starting to find... Uh, uh, getting getting results from the studies and uh, Health Canada shut down the study program. So, uh, but uh, and they put a gag order on the scientists. So, yeah, just but another. Uh, yeah, yeah another consideration we, for incineration. Yeah, yeah. lucky, lucky. Thank you, Wendy. Thanks, yeah. Wendy. Okay. Lucky for yeah. us, though, Wendy. Uh, lucky for us. Uh, though there there are international studies being done right now uh, in Europe, particularly on on nanoparticles, and I, I don't doubt for a second that we'll be using those uh, as soon as as soon as there are some kind of results, some kind of measurable uh, impacts, uh, we'll be using those. Of course, we will. Yeah. Wow, that's a uh, pretty impressive. Uh... So let's go back. I mean, I, I know I asked you already, but what's the solution to all this? I mean, is there Grown plastic is something like a great well, again, thing. This is a perfect example of, of an industry right, that is dependent on requirements, legislation, and social desire mm -hmm. to, uh, to look for more sustainable solutions. Um, and, and if we don't, if we don't force ourselves somehow or push, encourage is a better word perhaps, if we don't encourage our culture somehow to, to shift its focus away from convenience and, and towards sustainability, uh, you know, we're doomed. And this is just one, like really garbage is only is one piece of the pie, but it's an important one because here's, here's a good example. Uh, when you think about it, we don't mind going to a store and buying things, right? That's not delivered to our home. Mm -hmm. We go to the stores. We go. We 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 when we consume, 
most of what we consume, we we go into the community and we bring it back to you know to for whatever whatever reason, food uh, products. But when we want to unload it, what's left behind, we expect somehow our community to take responsibility for that. Mm. You know, we we want to put it on the curb, and 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 somehow this becomes a collective responsibility. So what what's happening is that we have not yet, much, unlike much much of European culture, we have not yet taken personal responsibility for our waste. Mm. We make it a collective responsibility, and so that's one one part of the process is 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 thinking about what's left and taking responsibility for that. Mm. Uh, the incinerator certainly isn't going to encourage us to do that. Yeah, That's a I would agree. And I kind of like the idea of growing your, your packaging. No, no, Yeah, it is. <laughs> but, you know, if, if they grow it, you know, does that mean if you get packaging that's more like shiitake, they're going to be more expensive than the... I expect it would be. And you can always, always garnish your salad. <laughs> it's not that kind. Well, the fungus, interestingly, it's more of a... Um, it's like a... Uh, it looks a lot... It looks something like... like um, Oh, uh, an open-celled styrofoam is what mm. it looks like. Uh, very large bubbles, you know, uh, and you can grow. I mean, I've seen, I've seen experiments where they grow, literally grow wall cavities. They fill wall cavities. Right? But then, of course, you have oh, to cool. sterilize it yeah. at the end of the process right? so that the bacteria are you – know, there is a sterilization involved, of course. But, but, um, but there's a technology there that is dependent, dependent on, uh, on people changing the way they think. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and Wendy's other point was, of course, the, the, the whole problem with burning is that you break the cycle. In other words, with, with, or, with composting, you grow food uh, and, and the waste returns to the soil to create nutrients to grow more food. That's a cycle. And the closed loop cycle is so important. When you burn, you break that cycle. You never get it back. Oh, cool. All right. Well, thank you, John, for uh, such uh, enlightening information. Mm-hmm. Um, We'll get back to the end and see uh, so the information so they can contact you and find you and all that. You want to pass me that pen? Because I think we should just move on the show. Not the pen, the pad. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Which one? This one? Yeah, because right now uh, it's time for... We already... An hour into the show. I'm telling you, it flies fast, right? So I guess we should... Uh, want to do another brilliant moment? Uh, another brilliant, brilliant moment, 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 moment brought, brought to you by religion. Interesting news, and this week is no different. I've got two stories. I'd love to hear what you think about this. In Oklahoma, have you guys heard the story about the, uh, the statue of uh, Baphomet they want to put there? Statue of who, sorry? Baphomet. I don't even know It's a statue of a devil, of a oh. demon, if you wish. Um, what happened is, that in the past, despite the logic of staying secular, uh, they erected a statue of the Ten Commandments in 2012 at the Capitol, uh, on, the, on the grounds. And they said it was okay because it was done by private. But it was on the grounds of the provincial... Capital. Oh, the state capital. State capital, sorry. Yeah, mm-hmm. in Oklahoma, right? Okay. Um, so, <laughs> enter the uh, New York City Satanic Temple, and they said, fine, if it's by private funds, although the Constitution says it should remain secular, they decide to raise money to put in a statue of Baphomet, which is basically a goat-headed statue that's supposed to be representing wizards. Two children on each side, right? Uh, so they've actually raised thirty thousand dollars at this point to put the statue, and they're almost building it right now. 
And, and they've been given uh, the go-ahead by the... Well, they're saying basically that the uh, Satanists will sue if the state officials back out, which is likely, but they don't have much of a choice because now they've opened the door to Christianity. So, so And also apparently there's a Hindu uh, uh, temple around there too that wants to erect the monkey god as well. So this is what happens when you don't realize that uh, freedom of religion also means freedom from religion especially on the common ground. There's another... They're allowing everyone to do it, then. Uh, sure yeah, that's only that fair, yeah. A, like a little stonehenge of, of, of statues of different religions. We should put around. a flying spaghetti monster in there. That'd be so good. There's also another nice little story. A, a so-called historian by the name of David Barton, and he's hired by Glenn Beck. So right there, you can roll your eyes to teach at his online, quote-unquote, university, and that should get a rise out of you, Karen, said that biblical principle was why women weren't supposed to vote. It was to keep the family together as for the good of the entire culture and society. He basically is saying that the family voted as a block and they were represented by the husband. So in his mind, he thought that you know all the family got together and say, okay, we're going to vote this way, and then the husband went there and did the vote. Um, so he says, basically, because of women's vote and women's suffrage, basically, uh, we've moved into a family anarchy kind of thing. Uh, you know, the more you weaken the family, blah, 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 and all the ails of the world are dependent on women voting, apparently. you have anything to say about that? <laughs> I'd say if that was in Canada, I'd be calling him on hate speech and taking him to court. Yeah, it's in the United States, they can say whatever they want. And it's, it's just amazing that in 2014, still think that somehow women voting a bigger problem than what they can have down in the States. Well, they're allowed to say that. So we're allowed to call them stupid. So we're going to do just that. Call them stupid. All right. <laughs> and that was our segment for that. You want to move on to uh, our spotlight today? Okay. Are we? But do we have time? What time is it? Sorry. Well, we still have about 30 minutes. All right. I have a spotlight today on Maud Barlow, since we're discussing environmental issues. If you didn't know, John, we decided to do basically uh, spotlights on people we think are worthy of following. Instead of having people following stuff like Jessica Simpson and, you know, that kind of crap. So we thought we'd do a spot every show on somebody worth looking up. Well, I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe well, you next time, but today is Maud Barlow. Well, yeah, he's here. So no, he's that's, here. That's he's, even better. Feel free to comment on Maud, too. I know you probably know far more about Maud Barlow than I do, actually. So, Maud Barlow was born in 1947 in Nova Scotia. Uh, she is the national chairperson of the Council of Canadians, which I'll talk more about later. She's a co-founder of Blue Planet, the Blue Planet Project, pardon me, which works internationally for human rights to water. She's the chair of the board of the uh, nonprofit organization Food and Water Watch, which is based in Washington. She's on the board of the San Francisco-based International Forum on Globalization. She's a counselor with the Hamburg-based World Futures Council. So she's, she's a great activist and leader in environmental issues. She has 11 honorary doctorates and more environmental awards than I could possibly mention. That's another person that when you meet them, you just say, oh, you know, just don't, don't. Destroy me with your intellect, please. But she's such a sweet person. I have she is. met her, and she's just she super is. nice. She's like your grandma. She almost wants to offer you apple pie as you shake her hand. <laughs> so what, what I think is the coolest thing about Mont Barlow is that 
in 2008 and 2009, she served as a senior advisor on water to the President of the United Nations. And she led the campaign to have water recognized as a human right by the United Nations. So she was in charge of all the, the data and the presentations. And uh, in the end, the, human right, uh, the UN had a, had a vote on this motion to make water a universal human right. And the motion passed, but Canada abstained from the vote, which essentially is a, is a no vote for this. Canada did not want water declared as an international human right. So, so Bob Barlow is really the reason why uh, water is recognized as a human right today. She's one of the persons. Yeah, she's very strong in that. Probably best known as the um, chairperson for the Council of Canadians, which was founded in 1985. There's 60 chapters across Canada. It's a nonprofit organization. Does not take any government or corporate funding, um, and it's a grassroots organization that advocates for water rights, for fair trade, uh, green energy public health care, and democracy. A lot of issues around democracy in Canada right now. So they do things like um, write reports on different bills that are trying to be passed and, uh, and really bring to public attention issues that the government would rather have swept under the carpet. So um, she was arrested in 2011 for protesting the tar sands. I'm sure that's not the first time she's been arrested. Um, and have a quote uh, by her. So she was, this is from an interview for the Progressive magazine. Um, and she, he, she was asked about water apartheid. And she, her response was, close to 2 billion people are without access to clean water, and most are living in the global south. We in the global north need to remember there is a global south right here in our countries. The more water costs and the rarer it becomes, and the more it's owned by corporations, the more it's going to be an issue of equity in our countries. Water has become the most important symbol of inequality and injustice in our world because you die from a lack of water. You may not die from a lack of education, but you will immediately die from a lack of clean drinking water. Yeah, and I have a little video clip for Let's play a few seconds of that. I think a lot of people are, are really beginning to see what's happening with their local water systems and they're worried about it, but they also don't know what to do and they... They think, well, I'm not an expert, I'm not an environmentalist, I'm not a scientist, I'm, you know, I, what can I do? And I, I use the term, you have the right to care, just because you live there. And, and, and I take it a step further, you have the responsibility to care, because that's your water system. And if you don't stand up for it, if you don't work to protect your local water system, who's going to? And I, I, so I think we need to empower people to really see their, their right and their responsibility to to say, if I'm not, if I, listen, governments aren't doing it. If they, you know, it's just not to let them off the hook. But who's going to look after this water system if it, if it isn't me? And there you go. That was Maud Barlow. It was interesting when I was researching her, although she has many honorary doctoral degrees, I couldn't find anything about um, education or early life. Usually you can find that sort of thing. She's just an average, everyday Canadian, except for that she cares so passionately and is so dedicated to changing the world. I mean, and that's that's really the message of Maude Barlow is that anyone can and everyone has the obligation to to try to make the world a better place. You ever met uh, Maude, John? Yes, I have, yeah. What yeah. do you think of her? Uh, I was at a fundraiser in Vancouver, and uh, I found her really just, like you said, incredibly refreshing and personable, uh, uh, very accessible, uh, down-to-earth. And, and yet, absolutely driven. <laughs> she's, yeah. she's a driven woman. Yeah. But 
and and, and the, 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 what's interesting is that you mentioned at the beginning uh, Canada's refusal to sign on to mm-hmm. uh, you know, to a, a sort of a global agreement on on the, the water as a right. Uh, obviously, Canada is is there's no there's, and and this isn't a secret, of course. That Canada is sees sees fresh water as a commodity. Yeah. Uh, not a right, and yeah. and uh, fight for water. We're not we're not the good guys. No, and well, whatever the case, I mean, we have a lot of it, and of course, uh, we we see it as a as a commodity. I know uh, our minister of, of uh, oh Ed Fast is our minister of international affairs. Yeah, uh, who's who's also a member of parliament in Abbotsford. Uh, he told me himself that he sees a future where Canada will will profit significantly from water. And uh, I mean, he he doesn't have the authority to say that, but it it gives you an idea of the of the um, the mindset Mm -hmm. of the government of the day that uh, that they don't see water as a right at all. Uh, They see it as a as a as a commodity and much like much like oil or coal or 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 anything else. uh, It will be something they expect to profit from, which is really, really frightening. Yeah, it's, it's also disturbing how the lack of. Humanity towards you know God knows there's so many no pun intended uh, there's so many uh, countries out there and people that are dying of thirst mm-hmm. and yet we're much more concerned about you know how much money we can get off the water you know, mm-hmm. instead of you know trying to save these people or trying to create uh, irrigation somehow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great documentary called uh, Blue Gold: The World Water War. Oh, it's a fantastic film. Because that and it really does a good job of discussing this issue. And, you know, at the same time, the BC government was giving away our, our water, the bottling facility. Yeah, that for, happened very recently, yes. For, uh, was it Nielsen? What was the company that was? Nestle. Nestle, thank you. Yeah, and they were giving it away for free, basically. And, yeah. and, and you can thank uh, Sheila and Muxlow in uh, Chilliwack with her group uh, Water Watch for, uh, for bringing that really, really exposing yeah. that whole issue and bringing oh, it to light. Yeah, Terrific work being done there. Great. Excellent. All right. Well, we got uh, 25 minutes left in here. We don't have to. We don't have to. <laughs> Are you done with your segment? Um, I am. I just had one more thing to add about water because this is a a recent thing. Um, just in last month. Um, so this is a a research facility that is in Manitoba, I believe. So it's called the Experimental Lakes Area, and it's a research lab been running since 1968, and it assesses um, the w- impact of of industry and of human activities on fresh water. So they, this is a research group that kind of exposed acid rain, showed what mm-hmm. the, the damage does to freshwater sh- fish, and, uh, and it, there has been many international and certainly within Canada also laws and environmental regulations put into place based on their research. It's one of the few uh, whole lake research facilities in the entire world. And the federal government decided that they didn't want to fund it anymore. Yeah. So since, since 2012, they've been working on a deal. Uh, the provinces, Ontario and uh, Manitoba, actually ended up bringing in a non-profit organization who's going to be you know, doing the research there, and and so they they managed to save this research facility, but but the government, federal government, is no longer going to fund it. Yeah, and I just thought that was a travesty. Well, we're going a bit off topic here, but uh, you know, I I kind of find it funny that you know they're, they're cutting on absolutely everything that seems vital, and yet they're always out of money, 
and they're always asking for more money. So it kind of makes you wonder, um, where, where's this money actually going I mean, there? It, it just shows that this is a research facility that shows environmental damage that's being done. They're not concerned about the environmental damage that's being done. They're only concerned about being able to sell water. That's a yeah. So You hear about yeah. that, something, Joe? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, again, like I say, all these, all, these, all these things are so connected, you know. Um, uh, the Water Act, uh, in, in, uh, you know, if you look at Department of Fisheries and Oceans and how they've so-called streamlined the, uh, the Act, the Fisheries Act, uh, to exclude uh, everything but uh, commercial, commercial, commercial uh, fisheries in their assessments of environmental impact, it's just absolutely, again, unconscionable. This is, this is doing so much damage to long-term long-term sustainability of habitats and, and, and you know, and regions. There, there's just, we just throw up our hands and say, how can this possibly happen in Canada? We were, 20 years ago, we were at the forefront yeah. Yeah. Of, uh, of environmental responsibility, at least, at least on paper, uh, not in reality. But certainly, certainly there, was, there was the foundation for building uh, sustainability mm-hmm. in our region, and we were working towards that. And in the last... 15 years, we've taken so many strides backwards at the federal, provincial, and municipal levels that, that mm-hmm. I just don't know anymore which way to turn. I don't want to be a negative uh, cynic, but, but really, I mean, I as far as I'm concerned, it can only get better from here. It can't possibly get worse. You're getting too done, I can put the happy, happy music again. <laughs> that might help. No, <laughs> it, it, it can get better. Well, what, what keeps me going certainly is, is, is talking to young people and, uh, you know, and listening to their... their um, I don't know, their passion for making things better. And then that drives me to, to, to keep trying. Yeah. And I think a vast majority of Canadians don't really realize that the impact it's going to have. I mean, now the government could go into your favorite um, provincial park or federal park and start drilling for oil or logging. Or the, the, well, those, hold a lot on, of... hold on here. Hold on. i got to stop you here because now we just went from air to water and now you're drilling for oil. <laughs> I know. Just saying that those kind of this show is going off the rails kind yet of again. Regulations are now no longer in place, so people could lose a, a camping area that they've gone to for generations or anything like that. You know, oh. I don't think Canadians realize the impact that this could have on their daily lives. Well, we're going to start enumerating everything that's wrong with the country right now. We're going to have like a this is all connected. Well, yeah, we're going to have a 20-hour show, and unfortunately, we didn't all have that much time. Uh-huh. So fine, I'm going to go with my rant. Now. Oh, you just cut off my rant for your rant. That's right. <laughs> All right. In everyday life, we are all facing numerous choices that will eventually shape our life. We usually prefer life over death, comfort over pain, and long-term benefits over short gains for the betterment of future generations. Biology teaches us that simple human instinct should compel us to take our own survival into consideration when making big environmental decisions. I think when history judges humanity on this era, people will be left scratching their heads in disbelief at the debate going on when this time, when the time comes to choose between short-term economic gain and the collective quality of our air, earth, and water. Let's have some not-so-fun facts. In one minute, 51 acres of tropical forests are destroyed. We consume 35,000 barrels of oil. 50 tons of fertile soil are washed or blown off cropland. We add 12,000 tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, each hour, 
1,600 acres of productive land become desert. 1,800 children die of malnutrition. That makes a total of 15 million each year. $120 million is spent on the military instead of green solution. 55 people are poisoned by the pesticides they use. Five die. Now each day, 25,000 people die of water shortage or contamination. 10 tons of nuclear waste are being generated by the 350 existing nuclear power plant. 250,000 tons of sulfuric acid fall as acid rain in the Northwest Hemisphere. 60 tons of plastic packaging and 372 tons of fishing nets are dumped into the sea by commercial fishermen. Yet here we are debating the merits of adding huge quantities of atmospheric pollution in order to save a few bucks. We debate the merits of creating energy with fossil fuel and garbage when we have more than we could ever use falling free from the sky in solar, not to mention wind, tidal, and geothermal. As a species, we are valuing saving a few bucks over the essential of life. We'd rather suffer and ride in a Mercedes-Benz than cycle to work, and we all too quickly believe pundits telling us it's all impossible to go green, and we should focus on the economic model of the 19th century. Something is profoundly wrong with a species that would choose non-essential luxury over the necessities of life for itself and their future generations. Einstein once said that the fate of mankind will be the one it deserves. And ask yourself, what choices are we making now, and what consequences for our kids will those choices bring? What is your choice? From John, and that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming, John. It was great to have you here. Hey, you thanks to... for inviting me. I really enjoyed this. Well, yeah. you're, you're always welcome to come back, and I hope you sure do. And, uh, you know, for uh, people that uh, want to try to get active about uh, the air quality, the shed, and all the incinerator fight, where would you send them? Where would you tell them to go? You mentioned zerowastebc.org. Well, there's yeah, there's there's really so many so many things people can do, but I, I, I suggest uh, educate yourself first. Uh, education has to come before action. Now, why are you looking at me when you see that? <laughs> you just gave me the thumbs up two minutes ago. And and really, uh, the best thing you can do is, is is do some research, do some homework, become confident in, in in that you that you know that that you know what what we're discussing is in fact true and and serious, and and then that will I think motivate people to action. There's almost limitless places where you can engage, uh, you know, locally, like I say, right at the community level. And then municipally, provincially, federally, there's endless places to, to engage. I would suggest um, one of the most active uh, sites right now would be burnfreebc.org. Burnfree, burn one word, burnfreebc.org. Okay. Certainly, in terms of the incinerator story, there's so much more going on than that. But, uh, but uh, that's just the topical one for the day. And, uh, and we'll put that on our website, too, so people can find the link there. Great. Oh, excellent. Um, aside that, uh, how can people get a hold of us, Karen? Uh, well, you can go to our website, www.leftatthevap.com. Yes. I guess we'll see you guys here in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, take care of yourself. Post Facebook, post, send us a email, whatever you want.